Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior, and welcome to another Tactical Tuesday, a short form conversation with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice for building your clean energy business or career. I try to keep these under 25 minutes so that you can enjoy them on your way to work or home or just a short jog, wherever you can squeeze it in. Chuck Swoboda is no stranger to this pressure and privilege of leadership. As the CEO and chairman of Cree Inc., the category-changing LED lighting brand that many of you are probably familiar with, he led the company from $6 million to over $1.6 billion in annual revenue, over 65 quarters of growth and industry-leading innovation. Chuck recently presented the keynote address for our inaugural Suncast Clean Energy Summit. So what you're about to hear is the audio version of that live streamed interview. As you'll hear in this interview, Chuck has a brand new book that just hit the shelves, all about finding that innovator's mindset. And I invited Chuck to share a bit about his journey and the parallels the clean energy economy might have with how the lighting industry grew in the late 90s and 2000s. It is a fascinating conversation by a fascinating individual that I've come to really, truly respect. And I hope that you'll enjoy this episode and share it with others. Let me know what lessons or insights stick with you from it, all right? Look for me over on LinkedIn. I always love chatting with you over there. You know, you can find more of these Tactical Tuesday episodes just like this one over at mysuncast.com. And hey, that's also where you'll find a link to Chuck's new book, The Innovator's Spirit and tons of other resources from guests just like Chuck. And in case you've missed it, I mentioned there that we've just wrapped our virtual summit. Tomorrow, in fact, is week three, which is all about Latin America. But you can check out all the past live sessions at suncastsummit.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Chuck is the innovator in residence at Marquette University. When we get a chance to go through his interview on the Suncast podcast uh, in the next few weeks, I encourage you to really dive into to that session because we go really deep into his history at Marquette and the work he's doing there now. But Chuck is also fairly well known as being the guy who led Cree through uh, the introduction of, the, of a technology that we all now enjoy and, and take as commonplace and, and logical that wasn't so much uh, in its day, the LED light bulb, right, Chuck? Yeah, it, it sounds so easy now that you mention it that way, but it certainly wasn't at the time. Yeah, so Chuck had 16 years at the helm as CEO and chairman of Cree Inc., part of a 27-year distinguished career where he led that company through many different iterations. Today, we're going to talk about what is at the core of what Chuck refers to as the innovator's spirit. And I'd like to kick things off here, Chuck. I remember a story that you told me that I think encapsulates the core of what it was like in the inception of or the birth of the LED market. And the reason that 
for our audience, I believe this is a good reference point from an innovation perspective, is that many uh, other industries like LED and, and lighting and energy efficiency and even telecom have gone through the amazing growth curve that we are now experiencing in clean energy, namely with solar uh, and, and soon energy storage. And I remember a, a time that when you were CEO, you described to me a phone call that your office got that for most of you was fairly incredulous or you all were incredulous. So if you'd walk, if you could take me back to that moment in time when your secretary told you there was an important phone call that she had ignored and uh, the ramifications of that call on uh, effectively the way that we see the world today with our lighting. Yeah. So uh, I think it was probably about 2009. And so we're in the depths of a pretty big recession in the country. I walk in back to my office one day and my assistant, Laura, grabs me. And she says, hey, you need to get back here right now. I, I got to get you on a phone. I said, what's happening? She goes, well, you need to talk to the White House. And I said, what? She goes, yeah, well, it's a long story. But basically, they called and I thought they were joking. I thought someone's screwing around. So I told them, yeah, this isn't really the White House. You know, I don't believe you because Korea was known as a place to maybe joke around a little bit. So she ignored them and she basically said, okay, I don't think this is true. Well, she hangs up, but she gets a phone number and says, well, call me back here if you want to see if it's true. And she calls back and it's the White House switchboard. And she's like, oh shit, now I got to really figure this out. So she's scrambling around. She finds me. I get in my office and I get invited by the president, Obama at the time, to um, come to Washington to meet with a small group of CEOs to talk about green technology and how this technology could be used to hopefully help lead the country out of the recession. And so, you know, that was the start of it. So I, a couple of days later, I said, obviously, you get invited by the president to go to the White House. I wasn't going to say no. So I jumped on a plane, went to Washington. And uh, I remember walking in to the White House and we're standing in the Roosevelt room waiting for President Obama to join us. And uh, I'm standing there with a variety of other CEOs and Stephen Chu, who at the time is Secretary of Energy. I'm feeling pretty confident with myself. And so I say to Stephen, I said, hey, you know, I'm curious, you know, we talk about green technology, but you're not using any LED lighting here in the White House. Why not? And he turns and looks at me and he goes, well, we'll use LED lighting in the White House when it pays for itself in my lifetime, not the LED's lifetime. And I was taken aback for a minute and I said, wait a minute. Wow. Oh, he's making a really good point. His point is, is that it's great technology, but it doesn't pay for itself. And if it doesn't pay for itself, we're not going to drive this market. So I literally took that comment that day. And I remember on the way home, I wrote it down on a piece of paper and it hung on my wall for the next several years. And I use it as a reminder to say that, you know, it's great to make technology that saves energy and it's good for the environment. But at the end of the day, if the math doesn't work, the market's not going to move. And so we use that or I use that as kind of a personal motivator for years to push ourselves to take the technology to where it would pay for itself. And originally the goal was, you know, if we could get LED lighting to pay for itself in a year, we thought that was like an incredible milestone. That was like our stretch goal. And, you know, obviously since then it's gone far past that, but uh, it was an incredible moment. It, by the way, meeting with the president, having that conversation was equally cool. But uh, the moment that I took away was literally being challenged by Stephen Chu. And it's always good to have a Nobel Prize winner tell you that you don't know what you're talking about. Wow. Stephen Chu laid down the gauntlet for you, Chuck. What year was this again? This was 2009. The thing that stuck out for me uh, was how, as a technology company, there are two things that I think there, uh, are, are, were non-obvious as I was learning the story of how Cree brought the first commercial-ready uh, LEDs to market. The first is that Cree, as a technology company, most of us, dare I say all of us, kind of recognize Cree as a 
a lighting company, as an LED bulb company, in fact, because we all have that experience with uh, kind of walking into Home Depot or Lowe's and seeing this massive shelf space of Cree light bulbs, uh, certainly back in the day as light bulbs were being introduced into the market pre, you know, GE and Philips and all the ma- major name brands uh, finally realizing that it was possible. But my understanding is that's not actually what Cree as a company was created for. Could you help the audience really understand why uh, LED lighting as a category wasn't really on the roadmap for Cree? Cree was originally founded as a material science company. So the original technology was developed at NC State. And in 1987, when the founders spun out, they had this idea that they were going to take this new material system called silicon carbide and they were going to commercialize it. Now, when they did this, people knew that theoretically silicon carbide could do these amazing things, but no one really thought it would ever be commercially viable. So that's kind of the genesis. When I joined in 1993, the first product is a blue LED. And honestly, in the beginning, that's kind of where we were focused on, right? We figured that if you had red and green LEDs and you added blue, there'd be a big market. That's what we were working on. And what happened is over time is as we made progress on the semiconductor technology, we would invent something that the market frankly didn't want. So in the beginning, we invent a blue LED, but there's no one who wants a blue LED. So we have to go out and work with customers to convince them, hey, you should sell these blue LEDs to your customers because we were just selling the chips and try to push them along. And so we made some progress there. And then as the LEDs got brighter and brighter, we eventually came out with this high power LED concept. And the problem we had there was there was one company in the world that had high power packaging technology. It was LumiLEDs at the time, but they didn't want to buy our chips. Even though ours were better, they didn't want to buy them because they said, no, we're going to use our own. So we were stuck. We have a technology that we're pretty sure enables this concept of lighting, but we don't have any way to get it to market. So that was the first time we made the decision that, well, having the technology is nice, but without a market, it doesn't really mean anything. And so we went and created a market. We became a high power LED packaging company. So we vertically integrated from a chip company to a packaging company. And we did that for several years and we made a lot of progress. And then at some point we had a white LED. So we have this light that we know is more efficient than a light bulb. We know that if you put it in a commercial lighting fixture, it'll last almost forever and forever is an exaggeration, 10 plus years. And so I spent two years trying to sell that LED to all the lighting companies around the world. And at the end of two years, we were O for pretty much everybody. There was a couple small companies that had bought them, but generally none of the big lighting companies wanted LEDs. And we're like, what do you mean? They go, it's great, right? It saves energy. Love that. Lasts forever. Love that. Why aren't you going to design a product with it? Because no one's asking for it. Well, they're not going to ask for it if you don't show it to them. We're not going to work on it until they ask for it. And so we were stuck. And that really led to the early days of something we called the LED lighting revolution, which sounds like a really cool marketing strategy and a description of what happened at the time. It was desperation, right? You have this thing, you know, it can change the world and no one will buy it. And so we cooked up this idea to go out and convince people to try it. And so we had some clever marketing people at the time and they, uh, they came up with a strategy to help cities take and use LED lighting to demonstrate they were doing something to save energy. Now, we have to remember, this is a time we're talking about late 2000s, and we have an energy crisis in the country, and everyone's talking about these things they could do, but the reality is, is most of them don't actually save much energy or provide much alternative. This is early days of solar, early days of wind. And so we're like, well, yeah, but like the easiest thing you can do to solve the energy problem is to use less of it. Let's promote this LED lighting. And so there was this public interest in getting 
to do things around saving energy. And there was a lot of pressure by governments to prove they were doing something. And so we turned LED lighting into the thing they could do right now. It became literally a political solution for many cities. And so the LED city program was created, which was to give cities a chance to show people they were doing something to work on the energy crisis. And the cities liked it because it actually paid for itself, right? Most of what they were being asked to do is do things because it's good for the environment. We could give them a product that they could take and it would actually make financial sense. And so that's how this thing got started and got built. But it was a, I mean, you're talking about a journey from when we first invented an LED that could, the first LEDs that we knew were better than a light bulb were in the early 2000s. We didn't really get into commercial lighting until late 2000s, right around, let's call it 2010, somewhere in that range. And it wasn't until 2013, the Cree LED bulb. So we're looking at a decade of where I tried to convince everyone that this was going to happen. And almost everyone said, no, nah, there's no reason it'll never happen. One of the things that uh, we're seeing is that not, we can, there's a lot we can learn from the growth path of previous technologies. And many folks that we, I would say, know and love or at least respect and admire in the solar industry have looked at LED lighting as a, uh, as a segment, not only uh, as an indicator, uh, a bell- bellwether of what was to come for our markets, but also for leadership lessons. And one of those folks is someone that you're probably all familiar with and that Chuck is certainly familiar with. He's a good friend of Chuck's, Mr. Tom Warner at SunPower. I wonder, Chuck, uh, as you were going into market, you know, one of the things that you and I talked about is that it seemed like everywhere I turned, I was getting, as a salesperson in commercial solar, I was getting the age old, well, if it doesn't pay back in two years, I'm not interested. And most of them were comparing to, to lighting retrofits, T12s to T8s and and eventually uh, T8s to LEDs. As the person leading, uh, really essentially leading the LED manufacturing charge, you had a lot of exposure to uh, an opportunity to chat with folks in the solar industry, namely Tom. What were your thoughts as, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, as solar began to become part of the zeitgeist, part of the common conversation, especially as you were getting to know and becoming good friends with Tom. What were your thoughts on solar as a technology from, from the perspective of a company that had made it, that, had, that was publicly traded and was, and was dominating the energy efficiency market? Yeah, you know, honestly, in the beginning, and, and Tom, would, Tom would be happy to recount this, is I was a skeptic. And I wasn't a skeptic because I didn't think solar would work. I knew it would work with enough time and money and energy, right? I, I had no doubt the technology could get there. But it was a question of early days, we were forcing it, right? Um, you know, I was competing in LED lighting. We had decided that if, if we had to get to a one-year payback, and initially we knew two was kind of the magic crossover. And, and where that comes from, by the way, is there was no... There was nothing magical other than most companies, if they're going to spend money on capital project, if it's in this year's budget, they have to get their money back in one year, ideally, not more than two. If it takes more than two years, most lighting retrofits are going to be never approved. They're just not going to do it because there are other things they could spend their money on and get their money back. It's just math. And so I was really skeptical in the early days of solar because you were talking about these really long payback cycles. And, uh, and what was interesting is that's when it started to be, I became aware of this idea. And, and you have to remember, solar is different in another respect in that it's a lot bigger capital dollar too, right? So remember an LED lighting upgrade to a company, it's, yeah, we could finance it. But at the end of the day, most companies have that capital on their budget. You want to do a large solar project, it's a lot of capital. So there is a difference between the two. But kind of the thing we learned from solar and realized early on is, is the math was all about 
can you finance it, right? And, and in fact, financing solar and a company's decision to put in LED lighting, they're the same problem, right? If I spend my capital, can I get a return in a reasonable period of time? And what financing does is it solves that problem for the company, right? It basically says the financing company is essentially doing the arbitrage on that thing. And so it was very interesting in the early days to watch how solar first started to bring this concept of finance projects in to make the math work because there was almost no private enterprise on its own that was going to say, yeah, I'll take a nine-year payback on something. And so, I, look, I was a skeptic. That being said, you know, obviously the industry has come a long way today. Uh, and this is what Tom and I discussed is today, if you were going to build a new utility-grade project, solar is probably the cheapest thing you can do, at least in the United States and in certain other countries. And I think that's just an amazing transition. That being said, you know, it's also one of the reasons why the industry is so tough because all the R&D dollars that went into making it that cheap, there hasn't been a big return on them because of huge amounts of capacity and other things. So I think it's been a really challenging, we've got to the goal, but we created an industry that financially it's, it's definitely tougher than what anyone thought when Tom and I were talking about it 15 years ago. And I think now it's really at a crossroads is what's next. I mean, you know, in LED lighting, I spent a decade trying to convince people they should believe LED lighting is going to get there. And we got really good at selling that story. But then at some point, everyone believes you. And when everyone believes you, your business problem changes. And I think that's really where solar is at today is, is that maybe not everyone, but a large percentage of people are starting to believe, okay, this makes sense. We're going to do it. Which means now the competitive dynamic has to shift to not why you should do it, but why you should pick my version versus someone else's. It's a really dynamic shift, not only for our market, but for clean energy broadly, especially when we think of clean energy as more than just generation technology. I think that we're starting to see a shift in the mindset of what is clean energy, especially with uh, folks trying to differentiate between clean energy and clean tech. So I see that you know, energy, energy efficiency is kind of the tip of the spear. Obviously, it's kind of almost that reduce, reuse, recycle mentality. How do we reduce the overall consumption uh, to hit our climate change goals, to hit our CO2 reduction goals? A big piece of the conversation around clean energy that I see as well now is how do we overall reduce one of the biggest factors contributing to climate change, electric vehicles taking over for fossil fuel as a propulsion technology, as a way to move people around. As leaders of companies that are trying to figure out how to, how to cr cross that uh, innovation gap, how do you encourage now as a board member, folks who are leading these companies through the innovator's dilemma and how to get from uh, idea and inception of, uh, of a charge to where we're at now in solar, we have the luxury that we are now the cost leader and we have to start integrating new sales and marketing techniques. For me, it kind of parallels the way that at Cree, you all got to the point where I believe, if I'm not mistaken, like Home Depot was saying, hey, we'd really like you to lower your pricing. We run into this, the dog catching the tire scenario, right? Where all of a sudden you've got to differentiate yourself from your competitors. You start to look more like a commodity. It's no longer innovative in and of itself. What advice do you give to leaders of these companies that are, are working within that construct? Uh, I think first you got to decide on what level do you want to compete? So if you built your company around innovation and you want to continue to innovate, then what you got to recognize is you got to find the next thing. It's not a it is not about optimizing and iterating from where we're at today. If you're in the innovation business, you got to figure out where we're going next. And so there's a, it's kind of a discontinuous approach. 
you may have built a company that's really good at making you know, the most cost-effective solar products today, then you actually have a different strategy. And, and so the first thing I always tell people is innovation and the, the needs of the company, they need to be aligned, right? You can't say, I'm going to be the best managed company and we're going to do a bunch of innovation at the same time. Those two things don't go together. What made these companies and what made Cree great at innovation was we were all in to find the next thing. And so I think what you got to recognize is there's this pivot. You either have to choose to become great managed companies and compete on cost and the most efficient delivery of sales and marketing, or you have to decide, hey, I want to solve this problem a completely different way. And you have to step back and look at the market and realize you're not a solar energy company. You're in the business of solving people's energy problems. What is that problem? And now what is that problem going to look like in the future? For us, I'll give you a, a, a very low tech example. So we get Home Depot, we become the largest supplier of LED light bulbs at Home Depot. The business is growing great, grows every year for the first two or three years. And Home Depot is a very interesting partner. They're great at giving you visibility and they're really good at making sure that uh, you don't make a lot of money selling your products. So we're scaling up and we're making these investments and the volume's going up. There's really not many profits going up and they're pushing us to come out with a lower and lower cost product. And at some point they said, look, if you don't come out with a lower cost product, we're going to source our own version of that product in Asia as a house brand, and it's going to become the volume leader, and you will lose that position. Are you sure you want to do that? And at first, we were going to make a low-cost version, and instead, we sat down and, and we did something that became, I think everyone can apply this, is, is stop where you're at today and ask yourself, where is the market going to be in five years? And then say, how do you want to compete successfully in that market? Forget where you're at today. Once you decide that, then work backwards. And it will tell you if you're on a path that works or not. In our case, what we realized is we were leading the consumption of LED light bulbs, but LED light bulbs last for about seven to 10 years instead of one year. So once everyone bought LED lighting, they were going to buy it on a quantity basis on a much lower rate. We were essentially going to cut the market and buy one. It was going to be one seventh as big as it used to be once everyone had bought their first LED light bulbs. And you're going, oh, so we're going to be the biggest player in a rapidly shrinking market. That seems like a really horrible idea, especially for a public company. And so what we decided was, even if we lose the volume leadership, we don't care we need more. This is more about brand. And so we've literally pivoted the product line to be very premium focused so that it would complement all the other work we were doing. And honestly, so we wouldn't end up with too much volume in a market that was going to be brutally commoditized when the volume started shrinking because everyone's adding capacity. And at some point, the consumption shrinks. That's a really bad economic situation, which I know that, you know, if you're in the solar panel business, you suffered that a couple of times over the last decade, but you can see those coming if you look carefully. And I think, you know, I don't think that's the necessarily the specific problem in clean energy. I think, uh, you know, obviously the solar industry has already survived this overcapacity situation, but it's really about, it's not solar, right? As a customer in five years, I don't care where it comes from. I want to know, I want energy, the most cost-effective and reliable energy I can get. Who can solve that problem for me? And I think that's, I think now that the technology people believe that it's going to be here, you have to flip your, kind of flip your mindset and ask yourself, what's the customer problem we're going to go solve? Because that's the, that's who will win in this next phase. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts. So why lose the sale to high demand charges? 
Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With Demandex, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Hey, while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy-to-install software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX just works. It works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Did you miss the live sessions of the Suncast Clean Energy Summit? God, we had so much fun with some of the most inspiring and impactful leaders in the clean economy. Learning about where the industry is going and giving you practical advice on how you too can participate and grow with us. Well, you're in luck because my team recorded the whole thing. And you can check it out at suncastsummit.com for a limited time for free. You can also see them by joining us at the Clean Energy Guild private Facebook group, where all the videos are also posted. Both are linked at suncastsummit.com. This idea of features versus benefits thinks, makes me think about the way we've been selling uh, renewable energy thus far, right? There's the, um, there's the idea that we have all these captive solar customers and now we can go back and sell them energy storage as an example. But you point out that that's really just a feature. How should we think about that paradigm shift from a sales perspective when we're introducing technology that is itself itself innovative? And as a part of that, I would love to hear your thought on uh, sort of the the crux of the innovator spirit, the idea that it's people over process. Yeah. So let me give you a quick analogy on the first part, and then I'll come back to the people versus process. So for us, the aha was this. So when we when we decided to make the Cree LED bulb, it was a strategy to get people to embrace LED lighting. And when we first you know, had this product, we had been selling LED lighting for several years on this idea. It will save you energy and it lasts forever. Right. So there is this incredible payback argument. And when we decided to try to our hand at getting into consumer light bulbs, that just doesn't resonate. In fact, when we talk to customers, not only do they not care how much energy their light bulb used, they didn't care about their light bulb at all. Like literally the number one marketing problem we had was consumer apathy. So they don't care. And so we're trying to figure out what we need to do. And at some point, I don't remember who came up with it or where it came out. And someone made it pretty obvious that, look, what people care about is saving money. And so literally, if you go back and those ads are still on uh, YouTube, you can see the original Creality bulb ads. They're very little about our product. They're almost completely about why are you wasting your money with that old technology? And they were focused just on that simple benefit. And what happened was, is once it became obvious to people that they were going to look stupid if they kept wasting their money, then the industry started to shift and there was no stopping it. So I think, you know, the challenge is what is the benefit to the customer, right? The customer, I know there are some set of customers that care about the fact that clean energy is good for them and good for the environment. I got it, right? They were the first ones that bought LED lighting, but we wanted a hundred percent adoption of the technology, right? We weren't trying to just get LED lighting into places that cared about it. We wanted the world to go a hundred percent. Solar is getting cheap enough. This is going to happen, but it is about the fact that it's a better solution for them. So the question isn't, they don't care about energy storage. They care about, does their bill go down every month and do their lights stay on 
at least as much or more than they used to be. Those are the only two things I care about. The electric company used to have an ad, which was simply, we keep your lights on, right? That was, that was their basic pitch. And the fact is, is that that is kind of what people care about, right? They want it to work when they hit the switch. And if it costs them less, they're pretty happy about that. Everything else, everything else is kind of everything else. It's just not what they're motivated. And so what I would encourage people to think about is storage. Storage is nice, but why do I care? I mean, as a, as a user, why do I care about storage? If What I would go in and sell is, if you buy this storage, I can fundamentally improve the value proposition to your company. You will save money and improve your reliability. And I think that's the winning argument for almost every technology in almost every market, every time. No matter how much we have these other things, that's when you go from a niche technology, which has a passionate group of people that love it, to one where it's just about the math. And the math motivates the vast majority of people. So that's kind of my, my wisdom on that side. I, can I say what that is in, in solar or in clean energy or in wind? Or, I don't know other than I know for sure they, as a technology guy, I think battery storage is cool. As a customer, I don't really care. Just tell me why it's better. Like, why does it make my life better? And I think if you can't say that, whoever figures that out first wins in this next phase of clean energy. They're just going to win because that's the value proposition that people will buy. As far as the innovator spirit, you know, to, to kind of take your second part of your question. So to me, you know, at Cree, we never talked about innovation. We just did it. It was not something that was like, hey, let's think about this process. It was, it was really just about the people. And so we built a company and a culture around this mindset of innovation. And I think it's important to keep that in mind for companies that today have matured and they're asking themselves, what do they want to be in the future? As we matured, we became less innovative. We brought in people that were way better at running the business, at uh, managing things, delivering quarterly results, which, by the way, is what the owners of the company wanted. But it also made us less innovative because the stuff that makes you good at management doesn't make you good at innovation. In fact, you know, if you think about it, your behaviors are a function of what you believe and your beliefs are a function of your experiences. So if you've been trained over years of working at a company that hitting the quarterly numbers is how you get rewarded, you're going to optimize around that. And I got to tell you, if you're going to pursue innovation and take big bets, you will miss some quarterly numbers. I did it a lot. I uh, somehow survived it for 65 earnings calls. But there were some really painful years by taking the approach. And so I think for every organization, you have to ask yourself, which way is this? What I would encourage you, though, is not to assume that you can process your way out of this. Yes, there are tools that will help, but start with the mindset. And so what I would imagine is people listening to this today, some of them have built the industry that you guys have, right? Some of them have made clean energy what it is. They're not wired probably the same as the people that are great at running it today. And so I would imagine that you know some part of the industry is going to create the next version of it. And some part of it's going to become better at optimizing what you have. And, and I think it comes down to the people you put on the teams. And those choices will dictate which strategy will work for you. There's a question coming in for you, Chuck, from Luis Morales. The question is, is there no way to excel at both innovation and running the business? Boy, I tried. So my strategy at Cree was when I took over, we were when I became CEO, we were a $100 million company. And my goal was we were going to run it like a startup to $500 million. Did that. And it was still pretty startup-like. We said, okay, fine, we're going to do that to a billion. And as we got to a billion, pretty startup, more innovative, but we were starting to build process. And in some way, we, we got to a billion. I said, we're going to go to 2 billion the same way. And it broke. 
And what you find is that what management is designed to do running the business is to take and essentially limit variability to deliver predictable results. That's what an investor-owned company typically rewards, right? That's what we want. And innovation is fundamentally about taking big risks. And if if you're going to be really innovative, you have to take enough risk that a lot of them aren't going to work. And so what happens, you get caught. And it, I've, I, we tried to balance risk and reward. And what we found is there isn't a balance, right? You either, you have to be biased to one or the other. Now, can you try to do both? Yes. So I should be honest for you. The person asked the question, when we did the Creality Bulb, we were already over a billion dollar company. And I was pretty sure that we knew it would not be successful if we let our lighting division do it. So the day I saw the light bulb, we made a decision to create a secret team of five people led by two of the early employees of Cree. And they went and developed it in secret completely outside the boundary conditions of the rest of the organization to the point where they reported to me, they had no other reporting requirements and we didn't have a budget. We just had a goal. And so we ran it like you'd run a start. So there, can you do both? Yes. Can the same person do both at the same time? In my experience, you have to opt prioritize one or the other. And the moment you pick whichever one that is, you're de-optimizing the other one. And honestly, you're much better off letting people focus and be good at one of them, at least in my experience. I do have one more question, and then we're going to wrap things up. And this came in from Dave Silman. What do you think may be the next new thing in clean tech and renewables? And I might add to that, we can talk about within the context of the conversation that you and I have had around what you're excited about uh, with regards to clean energy. There's a counterpoint to this that I think you have a really interesting perspective on, and that is the naysayers of clean energy, right? I'm thinking, for example, of Koch brothers, right? They're he- heavily invested in uh, non-renewables alternatives. As you're thinking about where is the clean energy industry going, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do we engage folks that, on the surface at least, it seems, might be anti-renewables. So one of the things I learned, and I'll, I'll take the second question first. When we were running Cree, there were a lot of people that told us LED lighting wouldn't work. And I think that the natural tendency is to become defensive, to say they're wrong, they won't listen, blah, blah, blah. Look, the Koch brothers, whether you like their views or not, and whether you agree with their politics or not, put that all aside. There is no debating they are successful business people. They didn't build that business by accident. And I actually had a chance to listen to one of them speak at a conference in Aspen a couple of years ago. And what I took away was your critics probably hold the most insight to helping you think about how you should really approach your business. And what I mean by that is when I listened to their argument about clean energy, they weren't anti-clean energy. They were anti-doing things that don't make business sense. And look, I live that, right? LED lighting was about making the economics work. They will be the first investor. They will be a big investor in clean tech when they believe the math is overwhelming. And so, you know, I think their argument would be is that if the math doesn't work, we could better spend our resources somewhere else. And so, look, whether you like what they say or not, it's a perspective. And so instead of getting mad at it, embrace it. How do you take their challenge? Say, fine, let's make the math work. When that math works, you're going to go from, hey, we've won to it's everywhere. And so that's kind of how I'd say the first thing to the question of what do I think about the future of clean tech? So I've had time in the last couple of years to spend some time talking with some uh you know, various industry groups. One of them actually is a is an electric co-op here in North Carolina. And 
One of the things I've been thinking about, and for those of you who don't know, Cree, in addition to LED lighting, has a semiconductor business that makes the semiconductors that go into most electric vehicles, these new battery storage systems. Cree continues to invent technology that plays in this market. And what I think is, I think a very large adoption of distributed energy is where the market goes. And I know there are people already thinking and talking about this, but to me, this idea of a large centralized power plant and putting lines and infrastructure everywhere to move power about knowing it's going to lose energy everywhere, it just doesn't make good business sense, right? So I believe we're going to end up with very localized distributed energy grids. And that's where, honestly, that's where things like the combination of the different technologies, bringing them together is going to become, you know, really what I think is what the future looks like. Think about it this way. There was a time when the market was centralized computing, large computer centers, and everyone was sitting out talking to it, right? There's a reason distributed computing took over the world because there are fundamental reasons why when you move the thing closer to the customer, you get rid of a bunch of inefficiencies. Now, is it more efficient today? Probably not. But I have no doubt that as those problems get solved, that's where the industry goes. Well, as I said before, I love your insights and thoughts on how the clean energy industry can learn from uh, how other industries like uh, LED lighting uh, went through that innovation curve and scaled product to become uh, multi-billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, I mentioned also as well, Chuck, that you have a book coming out called The Innovator's Spirit, uh, as well the, the title of this keynote, and that is on May 5th. How can folks uh, find more about your book? So uh, the book's available today. Actually, it's already started shipping early uh, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, but if you want to find out more about the book and the other things I'm working on, check out my website at chuckswoboda.com. And I would encourage everyone, if you get a chance to uh, listen to the podcast, I think this group will really like the Tom Warner episode. But what I would encourage you is to listen to some of the ones from other industries. Because while Tom can give you a perspective you can relate to directly, the point is, is that innovation is a mindset and listening to how a 93-year-old insurance business is thinking about innovation on the American Family episode, you talk about someone who's having to rethink their business after they've had success. It's just, to me, it really starts to give us some of these ideas. And to the person that asked the question, can you do both? American Family is trying to be innovative and respect what got them there. And they're living in the tension. And so I think... There's lessons to be learned from everyone, and I would encourage people to keep listening and keep learning. Wow, I so enjoyed that conversation with Chuck, and I hope that you did too. Hope that you'll go back and listen to the other episodes as well that we did for Suncast Summit. You can find those at suncastsummit.com. And I do hope you'll check out Chuck's book as well, which you can find linked over at mysuncast.com. Well, that might be a wrap on this conversation, Warrior, but I do hope we'll see you back here on Thursday for this week's long-form interview. I also encourage you, check out the other episodes on Suncast. Let me know what you think of these shorter-form discussions. Do you want more like this? Fits right inside your commute. We have hundreds of episodes, resources, and highlights from these discussions, along with the social media links for each episode guest book recommendations, and so much more at mysuncast.com. That's also where you'll find other ways to engage with the Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly tribe-exclusive email, or even joining our inner circle of infinite learners and clean economy champions we affectionately refer to as the Guild. You can learn more about the Guild at 
mysuncast.com, but you can also join us on our private Facebook group, the Clean Energy Guild. You'll find that at our website, but if you just search Facebook for Clean Energy Guild, you'll find it as well. Ask to be let in to the inner circle there and uh, look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey, if you're on Spotify or iTunes, I so appreciate your rating and review. That's how others can find Suncast more easily, and it really does make a big difference. A special thank you again to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them by clicking on the sponsor link at mysuncast.com, and you can follow those links for any offers that we've discussed here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.